open a Bible to Acts chapter 11. This is the ministry of the church after the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And so it's the work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the apostles. We turn to Acts chapter 11, and we'll also read a little bit from Acts 13 to see the context of what's happening here. In the first centuries of the church, becoming a Christian radically disrupted every aspect of your life. It would disrupt your job, your relationships, your family. Because becoming a Christian required distinct beliefs and distinct behaviors. It set you apart from your community and highlighted the differences in what you believed. And so this year we've been looking at the, the distinctive beliefs of the early church, which set them apart from the culture around them. Beliefs about sexual ethics, the sanctity of life, care for the poor and suffering, multi-ethnic diversity within the community, and radical forgiveness. Last week, Pastor Jonathan Seda, our guest preacher, described the church in Antioch, here in Acts chapter 11, as the epicenter of the multi-ethnic church movement. And so we turn to the book of Acts to hear the word of God. We're in Acts 11. I'm going to begin reading at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned it to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And now turn in your Bible or jump across the page, Acts chapter 13. As we continue the description of what happens in Antioch, Acts 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Let's come to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, the power of your gospel. I pray that as we 
read your word, we would be encouraged in the reconciling grace of Jesus, our Savior, that we would find hope that when we believe and turn, that we will find forgiveness, forgiveness from our sins, from our guilt, from our shame. Lord, I pray also that we would be convicted as we read your word, that we would not expect to walk out of this room the same as when we walked in, but that we would be, be changed by the work of your spirit, the washing and renewal that comes through your word. So, Father, we come because of the grace that is ours in Jesus, who is our Savior, Jesus the Christ, our King, our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. In 2007, Colombian artist Doris Salcedo made a literal crack in an art museum floor. And not just a little crack. It was a 548-foot-long crack that started as a hairline fracture and grew to about a foot wide, two feet deep. And it wasn't just any museum. It was the Tate Modern, home of Britain's national collection of modern and contemporary art. Salcedo was invited to fill this huge six-story exhibit space with her art. And instead of filling it, she chose to divide it. That's the description provided by Covenant College art history professor, Dr. Elisa Yukiko Weikbro. Other critics explain this giant crack. In breaking open the floor of the museum, Salcedo is exposing a fracture in modernity itself, in our culture. For Salcedo, the crack represents a history of racism running parallel to the history of modernity. Dr. Elisa Yukiko Whitebro, she's the art history teacher at our seminary's college, she considers her own experience of, of coming to understand just Western history, world history, particularly in, in modern times. She asks, how was the 20th century so bad? Everywhere. She, she wrestles as a, as a teacher of students with the challenges to even our own personal identity. She says, I was afraid that recognizing gross sins of our collective past meant that I couldn't be proud of my present identity. I was afraid that acknowledging the suffering of others would make my own personal suffering inconsequential. Now, how would you react to a giant crack? Now, in the museum, there were some that... that that were very cautious around it. There were others that, because they were on their phones, didn't even notice and tripped over it. The insurance company thought it was a nightmare to put a giant 500-foot crack in the main entrance to your museum. But, but how do you react when confronted not, not with art, but with history, with our community, the giant cracks in our culture? Do you stay away to keep yourself safe, or do you wrestle with the challenge? Sometimes we fear involvement in issues of injustice will mean we have no energy left to handle other tasks. Sometimes we act as if God has not called the church into a ministry of reconciliation. Dr. Yukiko Whitebro returns to the foundational fracture. And, and her experience as a, a woman of color as a seminary professor, is helpful for us. Listen to what she says. She says, sometimes we believe that dignity 
is a pie to be divvied up among us. We worry that if we grant dignity to one group's suffering or their accounting of history, then there is less dignity available for us. But this is foolish. We make God small when the reverse should be the case. For after all, if Jesus is coming back to make all the sad things untrue, then the more sad things we know, the bigger Jesus must be to undo them. The cracks are already there. Calling out the brokenness does not diminish Jesus' power. It magnifies Jesus. As a church, we need not fear the issues that threaten to divide us. We have a Savior who heals. We have a Savior who rescues us. And when we turn to the church in Antioch, we find a church united in its identity first in Christ. An identity in Jesus as Savior and the Lord that reconciles people from all backgrounds. Go with me to Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now the persecution of Stephen was at the death of Stephen, one of the deacons of the church, a man full of the Holy Spirit. And so Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says that the church because of the great persecution, was scattered, like seed being thrown into the wind to to grow roots and be planted in other places. The, The church was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So Jerusalem is in Judea. Samaria is the next region over. And so that's as far as the scattering went in chapter 8. But now here in chapter 11, we realize that that God has, has thrown the seed of the church even further than that, because now we're up into Phoenicia, and, and, and across the, the, into the Mediterranean to Cyprus. We are at Antioch. The church is, though still, verse 19 of Acts 11, only announcing gospel hope, only speaking the word to the Jews. But here in Antioch, something unexpected happens because verse 20 continues, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Or now maybe your Bible has a little map at the back, but, but quickly, Cyprus is that island about 100 miles off the coast. We're in, 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 the, in, in Antioch, we're in the, the province of Syria, which today includes parts of Turkey. So if you wanted to go visit today, you'd need a passport to travel to Turkey. But we're on the very eastern edge of the Mediterranean. And, and 100 miles offshore is the island of Cyprus. But even further than that, hundreds of miles further in North Africa, west of Egypt, is Cyrene. And so it's believers who heard the gospel, and, and we, can, we can speculate that they probably heard the gospel from Peter himself. Back in Acts chapter 2, because these are among the places on the day of Pentecost where people had gathered in Jerusalem. They'd come for the festival and they'd taken this good news about Jesus back to where they lived. And so they're so excited about this message, these Jewish believers in Jesus Christ from Cyrene in North Africa, Cyprus in the Mediterranean, they come to Antioch and they preach the gospel. But they don't dare stop where the apostles have stopped. Because the ministry of the apostles up to this point has been to preach only to the Jews. Now actually we've seen that Peter has been pushed to preach the gospel to Gentiles. But this is the first purposeful extended ministry to Hellenists. That just means they're Greek speakers. 
And here in context, it means they're not Jews, because the contrast of verse 19, that, that they were only speaking to Jews, but now they're speaking to Hellenists, they're speaking to Gentiles. They're speaking to pagans. They're announcing the ministry of the Lord Jesus to anyone who would listen. Now, in some, in some ways, this is necessary in a city like Antioch. Antioch is the world's third largest city at this point, at least the third largest city in the Roman Empire, behind only Rome and Alexandria in Egypt. It's a seat of the province of Syria, a a city well known for its its moral laxity, its its even sexual debauchery, so that even in the ancient world, when when politicians wanted to, to mock the degradations that were happening in Rome, they would compare the city to Antioch. It was a city full of gods, gods from throughout the empire because it was a cosmopolitan city, a city filled with people from around the Roman Empire. Now, we have this modern idea, in in lots of ways because of the impact of Christianity, we have this modern idea that your religious identity is distinguishable from your nationality. Meaning, you could be a Christian who is from North Africa. You could be a Christian who is from Southeast Asia. You could be a Christian who is from Wilmington, Delaware. But New Testament scholar Larry Hurtado points out that in the Roman era, back during the time of the book of Acts, and actually this, he he says, is true in many societies today, your religious identity was conferred on you at birth. It it wasn't even really a separate concept that you could have. You, you, You didn't think of religion as something separate from your ethnic and national identity. It was just built into who you were. You, you were expected to worship certain gods because they were the gods of your fathers and grandfathers. You were expected to worship certain gods because they were the gods of your estate. You were expected to worship certain gods because they were the gods of your city or your region or your people. And Antioch then is a city filled with gods because it's full of people from across the empire who brought their gods with them. But in Antioch, they would still be identified by the places from which they had come. They would be identified by the gods that they had brought with them. But in Acts 11, we find out that it's different among Christians. Because early Christianity did something radical, which seems to us pretty normal. It recognized that your most fundamental identity was not where you were based on where you were born. Your most fundamental identity wasn't one that was conferred to you by your parents or grandparents. The Christian faith decided that you could transcend local associations. The Christian faith could cross cultural and national boundaries. Pastor Tim Keller explains that the Christian faith was more fundamental to who you were than your own ethnicity. And that's why verse 26 in Acts 11 tells us that after Barnabas and Saul preach in Antioch for a whole year, look at the end of verse 26. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It's noticeable that they're not merely being associated with the Jewish faith, that this is now recognized here as something separate. Because it's not only Jews, it's the Hellenists, it's the Greeks, it's the barbarians, it's the pagans who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. This is something which is uniting people of all backgrounds. 
And look with me back at verse 23. When the, the church in, in Jerusalem, and remember, that's where Christianity began. That's where it started because that's where Jesus was crucified, where he was resurrected. That's where the ministries of the apostles began. But, but it was meant to spread to Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. But, and so they send, they, we need to investigate. We, we hear that something's happening in Antioch, that people are coming to faith, but it's not people like us. It's people from there and way over there and people from there. So they send Barnabas, a man who is full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. He investigates, but, but, but look at verse 23. That, that when he arrives, we're told, verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Okay, he came... And he saw the grace of God. Describe for me what the grace of God looks like. I mean, visually, what does it look like? Because normally we think of the grace of God, and to be fair, the, the verb saw, that you saw something, could be used the way we use that, that language, to see something conceptually. We use it the same way in English. But he walks in and he sees the grace of God. Now, we, we do that sometimes in worship services when we have a baptism or we have the Lord's Supper, that you're meant to see grace on display physically. But what's it mean when he walks in and sees the grace of God? Not only that he hears it, but he sees it. It's because when you walk into this church at Antioch, there is no other way to describe how did these people end up here? You can see it in the skin of the people in the church. You can see it in the attire that they wear. You can see it in the, the dress and the customs that are visible that show them to have come from someplace much different than this. There is nothing visual to, to unite these people together. And so, what is it that Barnabas sees? It's the grace of God. And that's why the word Christian and it's just, it's taking kind of the, the, the Greek form of the word Christ, Messiah, that Jesus is the king. And it's, it's Latinizing that by putting that these are the people of Christ. They are Christ people. They are like Christ. They are followers of Christ. They are Christians. Now, perhaps it even began as an, an epithet, a, a criticism offered by outsiders to describe what's going on in there. They're Christians. They follow that little Jewish Messiah. They're followers of Christ. It may have originally been an epithet thrown at the church, but, it, but it's an identity assumed by the church because there's nothing else that would explain what's happening in Antioch except that they are united in faith to Christ. And we see confirmation of the diversity in Antioch when we flip to chapter 13. The intervening chapter tells us about what takes place back in Jerusalem, but, but chapter 13 brings us back to the, the same context of chapter 11 in Antioch. And so we read in, in Acts 13 that there are, after the year of teaching from Barnabas and Saul, we're, we're, we now have prophets and teachers in the church. And there are five men whose names are listed. Barnabas, we've already been introduced to. We actually know from elsewhere in, in the book of Acts that he is a Jew from Cyprus. So he, and he will soon in verse 4 be sent on a missionary journey with Paul back to his hometown, or his homeland, but not merely to preach to Jews, to preach also to Gentiles in Cyprus. We were introduced in verse 1 of Acts 13 to Simeon. The only thing we're told about him is his nickname, Niger, 
which is Latin, which probably gives us some indication that he's from the western part of the empire, the Latin-speaking part of the empire. But if you know any Latin, and actually you don't even need to know Latin to have a guess at what the nickname Niger means, it means black. So he is likely a black man, a dark-skinned man from west, the west side of North Africa. Otherwise, why would you give us his nickname? Lucius, we're told specifically, is from Cyrene. He is North African. Menaean is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, Menaean is a Greek form of a Hebrew name, so he's probably a Greek-speaking Jew. But he grew up with Herod, Herod Antipas. Okay, you know Herod as the guy who cut off John the Baptist's head. You know Herod as the the king who presided over the trial of Jesus and wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And yet, this man who grew up with him, a man of high status, perhaps what we might even describe as a prince, a man of, of political and economic means, becomes a church leader when the one with whom he was raised becomes a destroyer of the church. And then the fifth name that we find in Acts 13, verse 1, is Saul, a Jew from Tarsus in Turkey, a man whose name will soon be changed to Paul, who will become the writer of much of the rest of the New Testament. But, but you just hear in just their names, just these five leaders, a description that these are men who come from all over the empire, men who come from, yes, both Jewish, but, but probably even from pagan backgrounds, who gather here in Antioch. It's a reminder that God is gifting the church without ethnic discrimination. Men from every part of the world, from every tribe and nation, are being raised up as leaders in the church. And so the only thing that would be left to describe a church like this is not their political alliances, not their socioeconomic backgrounds, not their ethnic identity. They are not Jewish. They are Christians. People always talking about Christ. They are the Christ people. And so Paul and Barnabas spend a year teaching that God raises up prophets and leaders in the church, a church that has been reconciled across ethnic boundaries, a church that includes people from diverse social and economic status. And then we see in, in these two chapters that it, this is a church that is committed to cross-cultural ministry. Because it is a cross-cultural church in this cosmopolitan city, this melting pot of the Roman Empire, it's a church then that assumes, well, if the gospel came to us, then the gospel must go to people everywhere. We, we see it in, in chapter 11. In we have a prophet who comes from, from Jerusalem who warns by God's spirit. And so this is a, a foretelling that there is coming a famine. And so here in Antioch, they decide, how would we best care for those in need? Well, as the famine begins to take hold, they find out that in Judea, in Jerusalem, there is need. And so they, verse 29, the disciples determined of chapter 11, that every one of them, according to his ability, would send relief to the brothers living in Judea. The Gentile church is willing to financially, practically help their Jewish brothers and sisters. 
One commentator says that this is the moment in the book of Acts where we see a complete reconciliation because the needs are being met across geographical and ethnic barriers. God, in his grace, had chosen to bless the Jews so that through the Jews, Gentiles would be blessed. And now God is blessing the Jews through the ministry of the Gentiles back to them. But it's not only that they are meeting practical needs. In chapter 13, we find out that they are a church on a global mission. The Holy Spirit, in verse 2 of chapter 13, after they are, when they are worshiping, when they are fasting, when they are it seems, expecting God's Spirit to give them direction about what should be next for us as a church. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now that work is going to take up the rest of this book, the book of Acts, because it's a work that will take them from Antioch, across to Cyprus, then into Asia Minor, and then on future journeys it will cross even the threshold into into Europe itself taking Paul eventually to the very capital of the empire. It's a global mission, a mission not merely to Jews, as it had been up to this point, but a mission to the the whole world. Because the reconciling that takes place at the cross of Christ, that we have been forgiven by God, is a reconciling that is meant to take place then between people. Because I've been forgiven by God, then I can forgive others. I can ask for forgiveness where necessary. The church then can cross whatever boundary a a culture or a society would place in front of it. The gospel cannot be stopped by the boundaries of our culture. However big the fracture is, Jesus is big enough to cross the divide. The reconciling of the cross commits us to meeting the needs of our neighbors in practical ways just as the church in Antioch fed Christians in Jerusalem and Judea. The reconciling of the cross commits us to make the gospel known to all people, just as Barnabas and Saul were sent with the gospel message. So we are sent to the very edges of the world to make the name of Jesus known. And yet, we don't even want to have the conversation. We fear that anyone who raises the issue of race or racism or racial divides in our culture has become politically liberal. We fear that to acknowledge racism in our current context traps people in their ethnic identities. Now, if Christian weren't the label that our neighbors expected to give to us, if the title of Christian hadn't been first given in Antioch and then been labeled Uh, uh, given as a label to Christians all around the world in the 2,000 years since then, what do you think our neighbors would call us if they walked in here and had to describe us? If they stopped by a ministry event, would there be easier cultural categories to come up with than the categories of faith? Would our neighbors connect us by our political affiliations? Well, they all vote the same way, so that's probably why they're there. Would they connect us by our ethnic identity? I mean, look at them. They all kind of came from the same place. By our educational attainment, by our financial security, by our vocational achievement. And yet Luke describes the church in Antioch as a church where the grace of God could be seen. Where the leaders of the church came from across the empire. 
where the lines of ethnic identity, economic status, and religious history were so confounded that a new term had to be invented. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. See, we need not fear meaningful engagement on issues of cultural justice or racial reconciliation because we have been reconciled to God and God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. So of all people, we as Christians are best equipped to step into these conversations. Of all people, we're best equipped to understand the the dignity and significance and identity of every person whom we meet. Or do we hold other identities more dearly? If people looked at us, would they say, well, he's like Christ. He's a Christian. Christ is the one I always hear him talk about. Christ must be most important to him. Or do we hold other identities more closely? Do you hold your citizenship more closely than you hold to Christ? Do you hold your political party more closely than you hold on to Christ? Do you cling to your wealth more dearly than you cling to Christ? See, I fear there would be a lot of labels you would apply to me before you got to the designation of Christian. I fear there are a lot of labels you would apply to us as a church before we get to the designation of Christian. But you see, in the church in Antioch, their primary identity, and this flew in the face of everything that would have even made sense in their culture, their primary identity was in Jesus. They could be united with people that looked nothing like them, that didn't eat the same kinds of foods, that didn't dress the same kind of way, that barely spoke the same language. These are people that that grew up speaking Latin as the, the language of the empire or Greek as the language of the empire, and yet grew up speaking the tongues of their, their own tribes and families. And yet, they can gather together in worship, in prayer, in fasting. They can hear the teaching of the apostles. They were ready to love and serve one another. And so because we have identified with Christ, if you've put your trust in him, then your primary identity isn't isn't on your political polling card. Your primary identity is not in your passport. Your primary identity doesn't reside with you at the address at which I could send you a letter. Your primary identity, if you've put your faith in Christ, is in Jesus, the Savior of the world. And so we can give ourselves fully to the mission of the gospel. We can give ourselves to the hard work of reconciliation in our communities. We can pursue justice for our neighbors, even ones who don't look like us or think like us. We can cross borders and cultural divides in practical ministry and in gospel hope. Church, Christians, we are here to heal the divide. If you go to the Tate Modern now, the crack isn't there. But you can see the scar. I mean, imagine the board of directors. You have an artist who wants to destroy the foundation of your building, and the scar is going to be there forever. And yet perhaps the scar is a reminder of the ways in which the cracks can be healed. We are called as a church to a ministry of reconciliation. When we first identify with Christ, then we can love and serve our neighbors. Pastor Kenny Foster of Grace Presbyterian Church in Dover. So Kenny is last week's preacher's pastor. So Jonathan Sada was the pastor at Grace, 
And Kenny is now the pastor at Grace in Dover. So Kenny is Jonathan's pastor. Kenny recently shared a story of God's reconciling grace. Michael Kent had spent years connected to neo-Nazi groups. He began attending rallies when he was only 15 years old. And so his hatred of the black community was well known. It was known to his parole officer, Tiffany Whittier, a black woman. She'd already seen his files. She'd seen the pictures of the tattoos. They were unmistakable. You, without any knowledge of the prison tattoo system, would know exactly who he is and what Mike believed. But when she goes first to introduce herself, she arrives at his home address alone. And that's his first question. Are you here alone? Like, incredulous that this woman would show up at his house by herself without backup. But he says her willingness to come to his home struck him as courageous. Michael describes that how in the coming months, Tiffany helped him abandon his old habits. This is what he says of her. He says, she mentored me, helped me, and loved me. Most parole officers had only ever seen me as just a number, and I always ended up back in the system. But this woman... She was someone I was supposed to hate, but she showed me love that my people, my peers, and my own culture couldn't show me. Tiffany describes her job, her career, not just as a job, but as a calling from God. She says, everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. I saw Mike's tattoos. I saw his case file before I walked to his door. So I knew what I was getting into. But I wanted him to know that I viewed him as an equal, as someone with value and dignity. Yes, I'm your probation officer, but I want to see you be successful. Officer Whittier continues, Jesus doesn't define us by our worst mistakes. Michael wasn't a believer at first because he could not see how God could love him. He couldn't understand how God could forgive him for all the hurt that he has caused. But that's what Jesus is about. Forgiveness and loving unconditionally. And that's what drives me, helping others and and reflecting Jesus. That's what brings me comfort and joy. It's not a job to me. It's my passion. A parole officer describing her life as ministry, as reconciling work, as reflecting Jesus, because the grace of God reconciles us. It's one small relationship. But at a time when racial tensions are high, Tiffany and Michael hope that their story can help foster reconciliation and healing. Maybe today there's a relationship that you can work to reconcile. Perhaps it begins with confessing our own sins, admitting our own need, finding our identity in Christ. And when your first identity is in Christ, then the grace of God can be seen. It can be visible. Because at Antioch, there was no other description available to explain what had taken place, to describe the reconciling grace of God. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Our Father, we rejoice that we who are not Jews by identity and ethnicity have been welcomed into your kingdom. Father, I thank you that we as a church have a history 
of hearing the gospel proclaimed, that we have the great privilege of, of making the name of Jesus known in our community, that we have a legacy of sending missionaries to the far corners of the globe. And so, Lord, do that reconciling work in our own hearts today. Where we have been hesitant to be honest, Lord, let us see the truth of your word. Where we have been unwilling to listen, Lord, let us quiet our mouths and hear your truth. Father, where we have been resentful and where we have caused pain, help us to seek forgiveness. Lord, use us like you used the church in Antioch to take the gospel in word and deed to our own neighbors and around the world. Lord, you are the God who reconciles us. So we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.